Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Okay, welcome back to our study of the Evergatinos. And we're picking up once again uh, with our hypothesis 22. And tonight we're on page 188 of the text of the first volume with letter C. And if you remember, the, the fathers have been speaking to us about uh, who it is that we spend company with and avoiding interactions that agitate the mind and the heart or uh, perhaps could lead one into sin, idle talk that could then develop into uh, and break down into thought or thought and talk that would be uh, lacking in virtue. And so we're continuing along these same lines. And obviously this is a more challenging one uh, to think about how we might apply some of the the, the thought of the fathers to our day-to-day -day life, since we are engaged in the world and we're so often exposed to, to many different things via media, but simply conversations with others. Part of it's a responsibility to in our work and, and, uh, and so how to embrace what they're talking about here in order that we might maintain this kind of unceasing remembrance of God uh, in our day-to-day -day life. So we're beginning tonight with uh, something from the life of St. Anthony. Again, letter C on 188. St. Anthony dearly loved spending time on his mountain. Once he was pressed by those in need, at the insistence of the governor of the region, he finally went down to the city. And after having said a few words about salvation, and about how we ought to act, he hastened to return to the mountain. The governor, however, demanded that he delay his return. I cannot spend time here in the city, St. Anthony replied. To persuade the governor of this, he gave the following charming illustration. Just as fish die when they linger on dry land, so monks are destroyed when they extend their stay with you and spend time with you. I must hasten back to the mountain then, just as the fish must to the sea, lest by lingering I forget to keep watch over my inner self. And so obviously for the monk, you know, uh, monos means alone, you know, alone with God. Uh, and uh, this is, would be the heart of their life to maintain stillness and silence in order to maintain this unceasing focus upon God throughout the course of one's day. And so they would not easily break away from this vocation and this commitment to, to prayer and the solitude that allowed for it. Uh, yet nonetheless, they began to gain this reputation for, for wisdom, uh, certainly in spiritual matters, but sometimes even in matters that were taking place where there would be a disruption in a city or a region. And often they would be called upon in their wisdom to come and to speak to the people in order perhaps to calm uh, the state of affairs. And, uh, and so the governor of this region asked him to come and speak to the people. And he talks to them about salvation, but also about how one ought to act. So he, he comes to them, he breaks that solitude uh, out of charity. Uh, and yet the, when the governor wants him to prolong that visit, perhaps wanting him to maintain the peace of their community, uh, Anthony realizes the danger of this, that to linger too long outside of the, the stillness and the silence of the desert would perhaps make him lose his own inner stillness and watchfulness and mind, mindfulness of God. 
and so thereby be diminished in his own spiritual practice and that intimacy with the Lord. And so uh, even though they would respond in charity, sometimes the church would be afflicted with heresy, and oftentimes uh, these, these great uh, ascetics would be called in even to councils at times to engage uh, the church as a whole and to offer what wisdom was gained through the ascetical and mystical life. But uh, again, they, they wouldn't do this easily. And even if they lingered too long, they would do penance for doing so. Uh, so much did they see this as part and parcel of their, their vocation. And so for us, you know, again, as we, we think about this, as Christian men and women living within the world, uh, what is it that is needed for us to maintain this intimacy with the Lord and to maintain, as we will see in further sections, maintain purity of heart uh, and maintain our zeal for the Lord without being sort of drawn in to the things of this world. And if you remember, world uh, often means those things that have uh, they give rise to the passions, so disordered desires, disordered appetites, and so uh, a constant conversation, noise, but also being exposed to, you know, some of the practices of those living in the world. There would always be the danger of those seeking to maintain those disciplines of being drawn into themselves. And uh, this, you know, I think when we think of our own life in our own day, what would be the distinctive Christian uh, lifestyle, in the sense of simplicity of life, uh, how it is that we engage, even in the good things of, of our world, the technology that we use, even the, the conversations that we would have within the workplace, how do we avoid idle talk, or how do we avoid conversation that is clearly uh, problematic on the level of virtue, in the sense of uh, talking about others, you know, joining in gossip or uh, detraction. How is it we sort of es escape that or move away from it? Do we engage others uh, about it? Do we remain silent and seek to bear witness simply through our through virtue? And so these are some of the things that will be discussed in the coming paragraphs. It's it's very difficult, I think, these days. You know, when there is a hostility, often. Uh, directed towards either religion as a whole or certain teachings of, of the faith. And uh, it's arising more and more in our own time. And again, certainly Christians in our own day haven't helped that. You know, perhaps the failure of our own witness, uh, breakdown within the church as a whole, uh, diminishment of the moral and spiritual authority of those in, in position of the care of souls in particular, I think has been a devastating uh, blow for the church. And so uh, how do we recapture what is being spoken about here uh, without failing to bear witness to Christ? Okay. Any thoughts so far? So just to this little illustration from Anthony that sort of sets the tone. Letter D from the Drontacon. A brother who was hastening to the city asked for the blessing of an elder. The elder replied to him, do not hasten to the city, but hasten to avoid the city and you will be saved. So again, you know, for the monks in particular, you know, if to say, stay in one cell is to learn what needs to be learned, 
you know, that their one is taught all things uh, because their one is unimpeded in prayer and undistracted. Uh, why would one freely go to the city or desire to go to the city when you've committed yourself to this particular particular path as a monk? In fact, it, it, it is it makes no sense whatsoever that in uh, it's a kind of an absurdity that you become monos, you know, alone with the alone, alone with God, and uh, and yet have within your, yourself the desire to go to the city to engage others. And so, you know, there's a contradiction there, which we often hold within our hearts as human beings. But for the monk in particular, to want this kind of engagement when he enters into the desert precisely to seek full engagement with God. So best to be avoided, he's told. When Abba John the Short was at the harvest, he heard a brother speaking angrily to his neighbor. Ah, you too, he said. He left the harvest and fled. So Abba John, you know, when there was a harvest or whenever they would have to enter into a populated area, perhaps to sell their goods in order to be able to survive. Uh, he sees one doing this and immediately falling into the passion of anger and speaking angrily with another. And so immediately uh, he leaves the harvest and he flees from it. And, um, you know, so they would look at something, anything that would still silence or intimacy with God in the same way that Philip Neary talked about uh, temptation, especially to uh, unchastity, you know, that the, the coward is the victor, you know, that whenever one comes up against the temptation, uh, one is to flee from, from the occasion and, uh, and not to put oneself to the test. And so for a monk who, again, who's committed himself to the silence and the prayer that flows from it, that he would flee naturally the occasions that would pull him away from it and only unwillingly leave it. Number three, the disciples of Abba Eulogius related the following story. When our elder sent us to Alexandria to sell our handiwork, he ordered us not to take, long, take longer than three days. If you take more than three days, he said, I am not responsible. We asked him, how is it that the monks in the cities and villages who associate night and day with worldly people are not harmed? He replied, believe me, my children, after becoming a monk, I, do not leave the skeet, I, I did not leave the skeet for 38 years. After this period, I once went to Abba Daniel to Patriarch Eusebius of, in Alexandria for some need. When we entered the city, we saw many monks. I then found myself in a state of ecstasy, and I beheld some of them being pecked by ravens and others being embraced by naked women who were whispering in their ears. Others were being thrashed by naked young boys and rubbed with human filth. I saw other men holding knives, chopping up human flesh and giving it to the monks to eat. I realized that whatever the passion to which each of the monks was succumbing, he had corresponding demons escorting him and speaking to his mind. This, brethren, is why I do not want you to even linger in the city, so that you may not be disturbed by such thoughts, or rather demons. 
And so, you know, the, the demons know our vulnerabilities, you know, that, as we've said, that there is this capacity to observe over the period, over the period of our whole lifetime and to observe and investigate with a kind of exactness so that they would know what our vulnerabilities are. And so he sees in the state of ecstasy, the, the monks and what they were going through and how they were being tempted and all of them to the things that they were most vulnerable to in their lives. And so, uh, you know, it's not, I think when we find ourselves here uh, struggling in our day-to-day -day life with certain thoughts, we have to realize that often behind them are the demons themselves. And oftentimes the fathers will use these two things interchangeably. Uh, the logismoi, you know, the thoughts, uh, not just being detached from any source. Sometimes they come from us, from our memory, from our imagination, but sometimes they come from the demons as well, who, who again, know our vulnerabilities. And so his thought, again, is not ever want to linger in the city because you're going to place yourself in a state of greater and greater vulnerability. The things that you would even think that you are incapable of uh, falling into uh, simply because you've been removed from all human interaction. That entering into the desert, remember, you know, all the sins that could come to them through their senses, through sight, through what they would hear, through interactions with others, uh, uh, would, they would be free of for the most part. The things that would give source, give rise to those things. And even in terms of their interactions with others, other monks, that, that would be kept to a limit. So entering back into the city, they were exposing themselves to things that perhaps they had gained uh, greater freedom from in the desert because they had removed themselves from them, from the sources of them. Uh, but to enter back in for a longer period of time or as little as three days would be enough to weaken that resolve for some of them. And the evil one is always looking, I think, for chinks in the armor, as it were, and is very adept with, you know, sticking us where we're most vulnerable. Anthony, does this mean that even as being a contemplative is a vocation, staying in a city to minister must be a specific vocation? Uh, for, for the Eastern Fathers, uh, I would say, yes to that on one level, that to embrace uh, this kind of radical contemplative life where one is seeking un unceasing prayer and so seeking to avoid anything that would be a distraction altogether, they would say absolutely yes. They wouldn't say though that it was, would be impossible for one living in the city to maintain this kind of recollection. In fact, it was St. Anthony himself who was told that there was someone in the city who had reached a, a level of greater holiness than him, that he had, uh, uh, I think it might've been a physician, but who maintained this remembrance of God uh, constantly throughout the course of his work. And so he had achieved this level of remembrance of, of God uh, to a level that exceeded that even of, of Anthony. And so, you know, we want to be careful of not falling into absolutes here. I think we're, again, looking at their particular vocation and what would pull them away from it. And so in looking at our vocations, 
in this life uh, uh, and within the world, we would want to be careful of all those things that would pull us away from living those vocations to their fullest extent. And so if one is married, uh, that would be one's primary vocation, you know, after certainly one's baptism and uh, simply being a Christian, but one would be called to live that in the fullest way possible and never putting it in jeopardy. And so uh, keeping the focus on the relationship with one's spouse, the care of one's children, and even one's work that one would do, you would seek to do it in such a way to provide for one's family, but not in a way that would pull you away from them, where there would be excessive concern about uh, worldly goods and, and property, uh, and where there would be a neglect of things spiritual, neglect of the, the prayer life. And, uh, you know, there's certainly a lot within our culture that can be distractions that can pull a person away subtly, maybe at first, uh, to take for granted those vocations or to uh, lessen one's commitment and effort to strengthen them over the course of a lifetime. And so often it can be the case that, you know, one spouse will begin to take the other for granted and perhaps be going out to mix, say, with the buddies, you know, drinking beer or uh, engaging in other nefarious activities, not that drinking beer is a nefarious activity, but, uh, you know, engaging in conversation that perhaps, you know, arouses the passions in some form or another, or begins to make one uh, uh, look at one's life as a whole, you know, that commitment, commitment to family, the, the responsibilities there, as if it were a burden you know, that keeps one from engaging in other activities that would be more enjoyable, more entertaining. And certainly that can be a trial, you know, marriage and uh, parenthood can be, you know, seem like a burden, something that weighs you down, that prevents, you know, you from having as much fun as you did when you were first married and didn't have any children. You know, all those kinds of thoughts can come come to mind. Or when you begin, you know, when sort of the uh, initial, you know, romance sort of maybe fades away or uh, that, uh, you know, there can be this sense that uh, certain aspects of the relationship have cooled or the, have been refocused. The energies of that relationship have been refocused on the responsibilities. And certain aspects of a spouse's personality can come forward. And again, you know, all those things are observed by the demons. So they can see what's going on within a relationship, how spouses interact, how they engage in their family life, where they shift their attention and their energy. So, you know, uh, just one little thing, and it's, this might seem uh, insignificant, but uh, video games, surprisingly, you know, that used to be a thing that kids would do and that you'd sort of step out of that at age 12 or 13. Uh, and gradually over the course of time, uh, that has become something that, you know, adults will do and engage in on computers and, and then into their 30s and their 40s and can spend an enormous amount of time. Uh, you know, I think what television perhaps was to a previous generation, these video games can be even more addictive 
And so somebody can come home from work, eat quickly and jump on the computer and play for four or five hours until bedtime. And, and so it can be things like, you know, I think we're looking at what some of the fathers are saying practically here. You know, what is it that's going to steal the, the things that are most significant in our relationships and in our, you know, most important relationship that with God? And where are we directing our attention? And so, you know, we talked a little bit of, in one of the past groups about uh, solitude being necessary for intimacy. And so, say within marriage itself, you know, the, the solitude that allows us to engage God in prayer, where we are then given the grace to fulfill the vocation that He's called us to, uh, you know, can be a problematic thing. Oftentimes, you know, prayer seems to be something that there's no time for. And say within marriage, again, not to pick on the married folks here, but, you know, when you have a job, but then you have children to take care of, you know, whether if they're very little, just their basic fundamental needs, or as they age, all the activities that they're involved in, then prayer can be pushed down on the list and maybe even pushed out altogether. And we might not see how this would affect family life over the course of time. And inevitably, I think in everybody's life, as new things come along, our life can become more and more complicated and full. We don't realize, and we aren't often thinking, if I do something else, or if I agree to take something else into my life, I have to say no to something else in order to make room for it. Otherwise, I have become, you know, my life takes on this frenetic pace, or, and I'm not really engaging in anything in my life very well, or I begin to let go of the things that are actually more important and more valuable and enduring. And so I think when we listen again to the, the fathers, that they, they so valued the life that God called them to, and they held it as precious and protected anything that might, might break it down. And so even if we were to take that one thing away, from, you know, from our reading tonight, I think that would be a good thing, you know, to look at our lives honestly and say, what is it that diminishes, first, our fundamental relationship with God? And how is it that we might rationalize the lack of prayer in our, on our day-to-day -day life? Then, then how does that relationship or lack of it have an impact upon the fundamental relationships in my life, spouses, children, friendships, things such as that? And uh, to ask those uh, kind of honest questions of ourselves and where do we need to simplify things or purify our life of the things that diminish what's most important. Okay. So from St. Ephraim the Syrian, my brothers, you know that when we came to the monastery, we renounced the world and all its attachments. Why then should we who have died to the world and to the affairs and troubles of life seek to be dragged down again into all these troubles? Our goal is to find a little sustenance and not to be given over to enjoyments. Our hands are sufficient to serve the needs of the body with the help of the Lord. Let us flee the world then and worldly things. And let us not allow ourselves to approach the world lest we break our promise. 
for no man that warth entangles warth entangles himself within the affairs of this life that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier and again work with labor and travail night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you so you know what we see here is again a kind of simplicity of lifestyle uh, you know a thoughtfulness about what is really needed in order to live the vocation that we've been called to and I think often we get locked in very early in our lives to the sense that we, we need to produce a fruitful life, but fruitful in a worldly sense, that we need to achieve certain goals that give value and identity to us. And part of what is seen as valuable within, within the world often are, are certain achievements or material wealth or at least comfort. Uh, abundance where we're providing more than for sustenance or what is needed for the care of others or our day-to-day -day life. And we keep working harder and harder, investing ourselves again in things that, that pull us away and, and build a kind of complexity into our life. And, uh, you know, even I think, you know, for example, within ministry, that there often is this, this temptation or this sense that we, we need to keep up with the world. We need to be engaging people in a certain way that the world engages them. Uh, the problem is with this, and we've talked about this before, that we're never going to be able to do that. We just don't have the resources and we're not good at it. And it just comes off as being, you know, uh, you know a poor exercise you know of and poor investment of money you know we will produce you know glossy things or movies or you know we'll try to enter you know make religion entertaining and uh invest a lot of time and money and and build and build and build even you know in terms of being able to provide things that we think are necessary to attract them and on some level i think we are in doing that and doing that to an extreme we can communicate something that somehow that christ himself uh you know the one who created us and redeemed us in a throne we were created and redeemed that you know that this is insufficient and maybe it even seems insufficient to us because we aren't fully living it. And so don't trust in the power of that, that it's not that reality is not provocative enough for us and doesn't speak enough to our own hearts that so when we are bearing witness to it, we think that we need to have all these additional aids in order to be able to do so. And, you know, I've often thought about this and, you know, in studying psychoanalysis in particular, you know, uh, what is ubiquitous to us is sublimation, you know, that we will, you know, often not in a conscious way, but sublimate certain desires or appetites or needs that we have as human beings. And there'll be, those energies will be redirected often in an unconscious way to things that we think that are uh, more productive. And, uh, and so sublimation, you know, is in that sense can be a really powerful kind of defense mechanism 
for us as human beings. You know, it, it redirects some of the, the, the raw or more basic desires and urges and needs towards things that are more productive or fruitful. And, but, you know, if we are being driven by that solely, if that those desires have not been shaped by our desire for God and not ordered and directed by his grace, then even within the life of the church and the life of religion, a lot of what we are doing can be driven more by these unconscious needs and desires. And, you know, the celibate priests are great builders. <laughs> they can be very creative in that sense and, you know, in this, uh, and build beautiful things. And, but there can be within that. And I'm not, I don't want to make that sound as though that, that that's wrong or a bad thing for the church, but it can take over in, in the sense that that becomes the, the reason for one's being, or one is finding their identity and what has been accomplished. You know, being a great builder or fundraiser or whatever it might be that, uh, you know, that, that can sometimes take over as though that's valued greater than the ascetical life, the life of, you know, seeking purity of heart, of, of responding as fully as we can to the grace that God gives us. And at times that can become profoundly disordered. Then we can be overly focused on material goods, or again, you know, everything becomes about fundraising. The church becomes more like a corporation and run like a corporation, a business, rather than being attentive to the care of souls. And, uh, you know, Philip Neri, again, you know, not always to bring him into these conversations, but he said, you know, when you have the care of souls, keep your hands off of people's purses. And, and you know, even when we look back to the gospel, you know, Christ sending out the apostles with nothing, you know, the bare minimum, and to rely upon the generosity of those where they visit and they evangelize and wanting them to rest upon the strength that is given by the spirit and to rely upon the providence of God. And so again, you know, I know there are practical needs for the life of the church, for its worship, for the care of, you know, its priest even too, but uh, these things can sort of take over to such an extent that they blur, blur our vision of, what is of greater importance. And so when we, we look in this, you know, what St. Ephraim is saying here is, is that, you know, they want to keep their focus on being a soldier. And he quotes, quoting Timothy here, Second Timothy, that they live as those who are engaged in this spiritual battle and that they are aware of these subtleties and subtle movements of the mind and the heart that can redirect our desire from God to other things, even when it seems to be, we're, we seem to be about religious business or the business of God. It's often a difficult thing, 
you know, even those within the church, you know, that are recognized, you know, with, within the church, it can be because of certain accomplishments, uh, you know, but sometimes this, this, this spiritual life, you know, gets pushed to the background. And one can become, you know, focused on being an administrator. And again, not that that's not important, but again, it can take over one's life fully. Any comments so far, or we'll go on with Ephraim. Okay. For if we sit and keep silence in ourselves, we are una unable to resist with courage the thoughts prompted by the passions and the phantom of worldly affairs. How shall we not be more easily caught if we throw ourselves into the encampment of our foes? If you approach the city or the village out of necessity with the permission of the abbots, you are blameless as long as you carry out the order given to you with the fear of God. For there are those who on the pretext of obedience wish to fulfill their own desires following the old man. But you must be wise and see that you do not gain mud and filth instead of gold and silver, and that you do not practice disobedience rather than obedience. So again, you know, things can become blurred very easily within the spiritual life where uh, we begin to see certain things that as being good when they actually pull us away from what is good and most important to us. And so he tells, Ephraim says, what makes you think if you're living in your cell and you've removed yourself from all the things that can be a source of temptation for you and you still battle with it in your thoughts and the memory and past desires for those things, you still have to engage in the spiritual warfare. What makes you think by thrusting yourself back into it freely that you're not going to be drawn down completely? And so we never want to, and I think maybe this is again, another thing that we would want to take from this is that we won't, never want to lose the, the sense that we are engaged in spiritual warfare, that we're not simply struggling again, to be good people, to live good lives, not to commit any grave sin. That's still not the Christian life. We're, you remember the story again, where Abba, Lot or Joseph says, why not become fire? That this is the reality that we're called to, to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect, to be merciful as he is merciful. And so always striving, you know, agonizing along that narrow path that leads to Christ. And the moment that we're, wherever we're living our life or whatever we're doing, where we allow ourselves to be pulled along another path that does not have God as, it, as its end is going to meet with disaster. And that can be, again, even if we set out and are convinced under obedience that something is for the good and know in our hearts that it really doesn't lead us there. And again, this sort of takes us back to thinking about who it is that we entrust our conscience to or who it is that we become obedient to within the spiritual life? Who's giving us counsel? Is it one who's going to tell us what we want to hear? Or is it going to be one who's going, who really does know us well and is going to challenge us where we, where we need to be challenged? 
Okay. So, for what benefit did they receive who were sent out with Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb to reconnoiter the land? It did not maintain the truth, but diverted the hearts of the sons of Israel away from the Lord when they returned and told lies. To be sure, they did not practice obedience, but rather disobedience. And for this reason, they themselves perished with the people. So that when you are sent out on an errand, do as you are ordered with the fear of God, in the belief that God is watching what you do. Do not add or take away or do anything according to your own will, but perform everything with regard to the goal and the will of him who gave you the orders. And then you will have an exceedingly great reward for your service. Know, my brother, that he who loves associating with worldly people has not yet come to disdain the world. For just as one who starts a fire, starts a fire stirs up flames, so also conversations with worldly people arouse passions in the hearts of monks. So to do as one is ordered and with the fear of God and with the belief that he is watching, that nothing remains hidden from the eyes of God. And so as we take up anything in our day-to-day -day life, to have this kind of, of mindfulness of God, that he does see all things. Remember the little song I told you that the Coptic monk taught us in Egypt? It almost, and how disappointing initially it seemed. Uh, well, for some of you who weren't part of that group, we, I was on this little pilgrimage and a Coptic monk got on our bus that was taking us out to the monasteries in Wadi Natrun. And, you know, and everybody was, you know, he's so joyful and everybody was glad to have him jump aboard. And he said, now I'm going to teach you this Coptic song. And I thought, great, he's going to teach us some ancient hymn, you know, that the, the monks sing, sing. And all of a sudden he, he broke into what was a child's song, what you would teach a child. Uh, remember, little eyes, what you see. Remember, little eyes, what you see. For there is a loving God who knows what you see. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. And he went through everything. You know, be careful, little hands, what you touch. Be careful. And, and so he taught us like 10 verses of this song. And, you know, I was like maybe, you know, I was still in my 20s. You know, I just, had just been a priest for a handful of years at that point and but that little ditty that little children's song has stuck in my mind for 25 years and i think it's because of the simple truth that it articulates and how it articulates it that there is uh, you know that we what we do what we see what we touch where we walk what we hear all has an effect upon us and so to be aware that there is a, a loving God who knows what you see, hear, touch, and where you walk is something that keeps us focused upon what we need to be focused upon. And again, it, you know, what made it lovely and charming is that it wasn't meant to scare the children. You know, that there is a loving God who's watching over you and seeking to protect you. And so be aware of that in the things that you choose to do and not, not to do. And 
And so more than you know, once it's come to mind, certainly over the course of, of the years. And I think because you know, that little song arises out of that, that Eastern spirituality of this watchfulness of heart, of being attentive and mindful of God and remembering him as unceasingly as we can. And so this is basically what Ephraim is telling them, you know, that we would not want to, to do anything other than what is ordered, not less than what is ordered, what, not, what, not more than what is ordered, and always with this awareness, most importantly, that God sees it, that there is a loving God who knows what we're doing. And so we, we want to take that up uh, with that same kind of care. And uh, again, for our day-to-day -day life, uh, that simple little song, I think, could be kind of our guide. You know, is what I'm doing during this hour of my day something that my state in life, my vocation demands out of love that I do? and that would be pleasing in the eyes of God? Or am I doing more than what I need or less than what I need to do? So am I being negligent in my responsibilities or am I going beyond them in such a way that I'm overvaluing them above and beyond say spouse or children or what I gain through doing something like work in terms of finance, am I working allowing myself to be worked to death to gain something that I think in my mind is needed, but really isn't intended by God. So I'm always wary of sharing that little song because then that's what's going to stick in. It's, it's like a little earworm. It's going to stick in people's minds over and above what the fathers tell us, but hopefully it's close enough to what they're saying uh, to be of value. Any com uh, comments or questions up to this point? I know this is a hard hypothesis. Uh, even in announcing the title of it on social media and of the hypothesis, you know, I've had people say, well, if that's true, then everybody's going to end up in hell. <laughs> and I don't think that's what's being communicated. I think what's being communicated is that the world, which is often symbolic for the passions, and that which has been that which is influenced by the passions, can draw a person away from God. And so we have to live as those who are citizens of the kingdom. And our life is to be reflective of that reality. And so if we do live in the world, we have to have that attentiveness to what we're doing, as well as knowing that God is attentive to it. Okay. Letter F from Antiochus, author of the Pandex. It is good in truth and exceedingly beneficial, my brother, to avoid inappropriate relations with worldly people and to remove ourselves far away from the damage that they can cause. For they talk about things, I'm sorry, they talk about the vanities of the present age and when the mind takes in these things, it becomes debilitated, ceases to engage in spiritual tasks, and relaxes the intensity of its asceticism. And after worldly people depart, it is grieved, since 
it has not performed its role of prayer. This is why ascetic strugglers sought the deserts, so as to get away from all this worldly vanity and to converse with God unhindered. So this has also been a, a difficult thing. I think when uh, I put quotes from this uh, the particular hypothesis online, you know, inappropriate relationships with worldly people, you know, how does one do that living in our world? Uh, in the sense of avoiding the vanities of the present age, conversations about vain things uh, that then lead us uh, not only to let off of our spiritual disciplines, but we allow it to get to the point where we are debilitated in that regard. And then are left with this sinking feeling, a kind of internal remorse. If we are really engaged in the spiritual life and we are a set of strugglers, then we'll feel intensely this, what has been lost. That when we've in a kind of uh, unthinking way allowed ourselves to be distracted by the things of this world and have not engaged in prayer, we experience the emptiness of that. And so we can be pulled into those kinds uh, of things, feeling a kind of pressure uh, you know, a kind of social pressure that we, out of charity, need to engage and allow ourselves to be drawn into it because we're being encouraged. We don't want to seem to be, uh, you know, inhospitable or unfriendly. And so we will convince ourselves to let go of our judgment and we'll be pulled into it. But inevitably, we, we feel a kind of loss. And I think the simplest way to see this is when we've watched a movie that is terrible. And the, the thing that we often will say is I just wasted two hours of my life. And it's not only because the movie, and I think for the person who's more spiritual, prayerful, it's not even because the movie stunk. It's because we realized that we allowed ourselves to drift into this you know, world of virtual reality. And, or we exchange uh, this intimacy with he who is reality itself, meaning itself, to immerse ourselves in the, the fake world, the virtual world of what is being presented to us on a screen. And again, you know, I don't want to demonize, you know, a person watching, you know, a movie or something like that for entertainment, but it has become, you know, such a powerful force, you know, where there's binge watching one after another, things such as that, where an inordinate amount of time is spent doing those things. Eric Chastain. Stop being friends, stop being friends as much as possible with worldly people. It will help everything tremendously. Having done this, it helps to remove many occasions of sin. Uh, yes, you know, I think, again, you know, there's a question here that I think is important for us to see that, you know, there are some clear and obvious uh, examples of this, that we wouldn't immerse ourselves in situations or relationships where there is a clear, uh, you know, moral problem for us, you know, that something that is going uh, to draw us into, you know, situations where we are going to be tempted and then fall. Uh, the trickier thing to do, I think, is when it is with relations that we have, friends, 
extended family and perhaps even uh, on a more personal level, what if it's with one's spouse or parents or children, you know, where th one has taken two different paths in life, where there's been a kind of divergence there. And, you know, we're, you know, we're confronted, you know, with the gospel passage where we are told that, you know, that there will be division, you know, between father and son and mother and daughter, and as the list goes on. And, you know, what, what, what are we to do in those moments where it is somebody that we are bound to in a specific way by blood, by marriage, or living in a religious community or something along those lines? How do we respond to what the fathers are telling us here? And uh, in a paragraph or so, he's going to talk about, you know, how we are often tempted out to teach others or just uh, share, you know, the faith with them. How, how, how do we do that? And, uh, you know, especially for a monk, this would be problematic because they would be constantly being asked to talk about something. And so what they emphasize is the life of virtue and prayer is ultimately having a greater impact upon the lives of others. And I think with those relationships where there is a greater bond, and yet we find this conflict where there is perhaps more of an attachment to worldly things. What do we do then? And I think, you know, first we have to focus upon ourselves. The, the line goes through our own hearts where we seek a kind of purity of heart for ourselves, where we are seeking only the things that God desires of us, to love him above all things that we allow our own hearts to be ordered and directed by the grace of God. And it is then and only then, I think that we begin to see with a kind of clarity uh, and to be, begin to see things with the eyes of Christ and to see others uh, with the eyes of Christ, you know, that we gaze upon others, uh, not with harshness or dismissiveness uh, or a callousness, you know, where we are, sort of casting them aside. Uh, I think what we are called to is to protect our virtue and to trust that God can work in and through that. And, you know, by living a holy life and by witnessing to the love and the virtue of Christ himself, that this is the, the foundation upon which we are to build in order to both protect ourselves, but perhaps to move others uh, away from the things that are the vanities of this world or the things that are driven by the passions. And that's a hard thing for us because I think when we find uh, perhaps the things that we love being scorned or being mocked or made fun of or not respected or where we're constantly being, you know, sort of uh, called to step away from the things that have the steepest value for us as Christian men and women, uh, or that our love for God is being compared for our love for our, our spouse. You know, as a priest over the course of years, I've seen this dozens of times where a spouse will undergo a kind of deep conversion and a 
the desire for God, the desire for prayer, uh, attendance of daily mass, and the other spouse will get jealous, uh, jealous of God, uh, because the affection and the attention is being directed to those things that are speaking very deeply to the heart. And there can be a kind of energy and joy about that re relationship that the spouse can see is competitive. Why am I not getting all of that? Show me a little bit of that love and a little bit of that attention. You know, when a spouse is, you know, spending an hour or so in adoration or going to daily mass or something along those lines. And so, you know, I think it requires, you know, we aren't to be dismissive of others and we aren't to be condescending and we aren't to see ourselves as better than others. That's not, I think, what this is, this hypothesis is teaching us. It's telling us that we have to hold on to the things of God, the things that really are formative of the heart, that give us the capacity to love in order that we can truly love others. And if we sacrifice that which has the greatest value in our life, we are actually failing in our, our call to love others. That we only find the capacity to give ourselves in love by entering into that relationship with Christ so that he might be able to give us his own love and allow us to be able to love and serve others in the way that he desires us to do so. And there's often a, an enormous conflict that arises at, at that time. You know, do I let go of these things? You know, am I putting a strain on these relations? And, and in reality, the answer to that question is yes. And it is putting, it can put a strain on those relationships, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, not that we aggravate it. Uh, I think one would have to be able to articulate the desire for God and the desire for those things that have great weight and value for us and to do it in such a sense that it doesn't seem like a condemnation of the other or it doesn't come off as condescending, you know, because when it does, then I think a person picks up only judgment from us not love and charity. And so Eric Chastain writes then, it, I read it as saying that we should flee from the world as much as possible, including worldly people to protect ourselves from the flaring of passions, but without abandoning our responsibilities if we are not a monk. Right, you know, we are called to flee certain situations. I mean, the, the fathers, and I think the scriptures are pretty clear about that, that we can't expose ourselves to the things that are going to pull us away from Christ, or that are going to put us in the grip of the demons. But, you know, at the center of all this has to be Christ, and the one who shapes this for us. And I think especially in those relationships uh, with people that God has placed into our lives. You know, how do we fully give ourselves over to God and yet fully love those who perhaps have not come to see him or don't know him?
Any thoughts on this? No comments? Okay. All right. So just a few more thoughts here. So if one becomes entangled in the affairs and associations of this life, he becomes disreputable before God and contemptible to men. I, th I found this to be an interesting thought, you know, because when we do out of this sense of charity or the sense of needing to be connected with others uh, within the world who don't embrace Christ or the, the path of the Christian, then we ultimately become contemptible in their eyes because they see the weakness of our resolve. You know, the, remember the story in the gospel where Jesus praises the dishonest steward, you know, that he has this zeal and this drive to protect himself, that he goes out and he knows that he's going to get it from his master. So he goes out and he makes friends with all of those that he has bargained with in the past or all that he's had dealings with in the past. And, you know, that the sons of this world, Christ says, often you know, act in a way that is superior to the sons of light. And, you know, when we set aside, you know, the things that are for our own salvation and the things that our faith proclaims, ultimately we become, eventually we become contemptible in the eyes of this world. If we go along with everyone in order to get along, then eventually they're going to find us contemptible in that very faith that we profess because they, they know from experience that we, we really do not have a firm resolve. They don't see those who hunger for God and for the things of God. And so this is what we cannot sacrifice. It is advantageous for us then to desert worldly people of our own accord to avoid their conversations which wholly harm our souls to lock ourselves in ourselves and thus be saved like a gazelle from the noose and like the bird from the snare. For relations with people in the world of no benefit and loquacious as they are, are truly nooses and snares for those who wish to be saved. They occupy the mind and separate it from sweet converse with God and then inclination toward him and make us prate with our own vanity. So we, we talk foolishly about our own selves, or our own lives, and even about the spiritual life, uh, and yet to no avail. And the cell for us is really the human heart, that we retreat to the human heart, where there it is that we engage God. And we, we do not leave there easily and allow ourselves to be drawn into these kinds of conversations that then lead us to mimic them. And think about it, this, these images of, uh, of uh, what are the, uh, the gazelle and the bird being caught in a noose and a snare. I mean, that's sort of what happens to us, that if we aren't watchful of the, our, our own heart or where our thoughts are going, we fi suddenly find ourselves ensnared and drawn in to certain conversations, drawn into certain uh, activities that then 
diminish that attentiveness very quickly. So we're, we're not called to live, leave the world, but we're called to stay in your cell and your cell will teach you everything that is within your heart. And so we engage in the prayer of the heart, the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, drawing ourselves back again and again toward God and being attentive to him. And with this gradually comes not only this constant awareness of him, but again, that purity of heart that allows us to see all of these interactions, those which to avoid and, and even also how to avoid them in order to be also able to keep from being ensnared by them. Any final comments or thoughts? We're at 832, but a few moments here if anybody wants to add anything or has any questions or concerns. Nobody has any big concerns about this. It raised a whole lot of concerns for me. <laughs> well, it certainly gives me something to think about. I mean, um, you know, in keeping the uh, uh, sort of, well, the Jesus-centric uh, right. mindset uh, in, in all that we do. And it's, it's yeah, it's, 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 it's not easy uh, all the time. And, um, uh, and that's where the challenge is. And that's where yeah, I think we have to, kind of, at least for me, I have to kind of go back and, and, and uh, reset the the christ-centric uh thought process and it anyway it just gives me a lot to think about father and i thank you for sharing this with with us you're very welcome and yeah i agree it is a struggle you know to maintain a christ-centered life when there are so many things calling out to us and beckoning us and they can all all be very powerful and very attractive and often to maintain that watchfulness is a very difficult thing, you know, because we are, we're not feeding the senses and we're not responding to every feeling and every thought. And so to stay within that silence in order to listen to God can be a very difficult thing. And I think this is also why they gravitated to the, the shorter prayers because of the, the number of thoughts that we all have but also the things that we experience in the world that come at us too. So to guard the senses as well as to take each thought captive requires this kind of constant vigilance. And this is not, you know, the, this is where the fathers are very clear. This is not meant just for the monks in the desert. You know, this is meant for every Christian who is seeking this Christ-centered life and to maintain it. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. I love it. Annie, did you have a thought? Yes, Father, thank you for this beautiful teaching. And I think for we that are married uh, couples, your spouse, uh, to stay inside this, not inside the cell, but to maintain that focus when one spouse really likes to watch TV constantly is, is really a challenge. Um, do you have any suggestions for that on 
because I know that's my first vocation, but I often feel torn between spending more time with my spouse. Um, and I, but I just don't like the, the programs. Right, it takes right. me away, as you said. So I didn't know if anyone had any suggestions. Well, I, I think to turn it off and to realize that, again, that it's not going to be an easy thing, that I think we sort of, there's a kind of reflexive response to that, that we've got, we get into these patterns of behavior. And even when we set ourselves to move away from them, when we even see clearly that there are sources of distraction or agitation, or they prevent intimacy with others, that we will gravitate back towards them because of the feeling that they create. And so we have to understand, and the fathers will talk about this further on, uh, that when we begin to do this, that we are going to be afflicted even more. And it's the same thing with the praying of the Jesus prayer, you know, where we are trying to keep our thoughts directed toward Christ, toward God, to have this Christ-centered, God-centered life. That the moment that we begin to take up this practice, I was reading today, St. Ignatius Bryankinov is a, he's an Eastern uh, saint. He says, you know, the, the moment that we begin to take up that discipline, you're going to be attacked more and more by the demons who are going to seek to drive you away from it. And I think just having that in mind is going to allow us to stay within that spiritual warfare, that even if we fall day after day, we get back and we step back into this where we are trying to move more towards God and to be, be attentive to him. And I just want to pause here to look at uh, uh, a couple of Ambrose's thoughts. Challenge to connect with people if we're always trying to be aloof. And you could try time boxing, <laughs> like I'll watch an hour with you or something and just this show on this day or similar. That's, that's good. You know, I think to be measured and ordered can be this helpful step. And I think in our struggle with any of the passions, you know, to begin to, uh, to do things in a more ordered fashion where it doesn't take over our life. I think uh, the, the, the reference here to be uh, being aloof, that can be a danger. And I think it's the reason that I said some of the things earlier that it can never be this condescending attitude towards others, that it has to go through our own heart and the purification of our own heart first. So that even in our moving away from the things that are a cause of concern for us, that it's never our being aloof to the other, that we should always be seeing others again with the eyes of love, even when we are not willing to be pulled along and to participate in the things that we know that might put us in jeopardy. Angela, you'll be our... Uh Final Thank word. you. Thank you so much for today. It's just been wonderful for me. Um, yesterday, I was reading the Philokalia, uh, John Cashin, in volume one. And I just want to read what he said, because I took it to heart. And now this is you're saying the opposite. But I understand that um, <laughs> that dichotomy. But he says, do not seek solitude to avoid anger. Struggle with this demon and the sickness which lies within us. Um, I just found that very, very good for me because my tendency is to just flee from conflict. conflict. And John Cashin is saying, no, struggle with that demon that's within you. And, and 
for me, it seems that would be a better way at the moment anyway. Right. Um, so I just so thought I'd, you know, this timing of, of your own sort of spiritual path comes into this, surely. Right, yeah. I, you know, what I love, Cassian's actually, I think one of the best of teachers among the fathers and there's a real clarity among him. If you have a chance to read his conferences as a whole, uh, it's well worth the time. It's a good 800 pages of reading, but extremely valuable. But, you know, I think what Cassian realized is that we can fall, we can in and through our avoidance of the dealing with the passion and struggling with it, we can fall into a fierce silence. And so that we will withdraw from the other, not because we're struggling with the anger, but in reality, because we're giving ourselves over to it. We begin to avoid the other because of that anger. And yeah, he said that it was pride that caused us yeah, to do right. that. And I can well, see that too. That's right. I can see pride too. But we're, we're setting ourselves up against the other. But often we will fall into that fierce kind of silence where, where we are staying within it and we are holding our own ground. You know, this person said this or did this to me. And so we'll withdraw and we'll stay in the anger rather than struggling with it and struggling with it in and through our prayer or humbling ourselves before, before the other. And so, you know, again, it's, you know, all of what's being said here is understanding the, again, the fierceness of the battle and that our own hearts have to be purified in order to live the life of grace that God has called us in all of its fullness. And it's only in and through this that we can bear witness to that love of the kingdom. And, you know, unless we are willing to, to discipline ourselves, to strive, to struggle with the passions and not freely give ourselves into those things that, that will pull us into them, we're never going to be able to bear witness to the freedom that life in Christ offers us. And, you know, that life in Christ is something that's so powerful, you know, when there is no impediment within us to the action of that grace, they are so confident in the power of that, that they, you know, that one doesn't need words. The life of virtue, even one's silence, the look in one's eyes is far more powerful than the most powerful of sermons. Uh, I was reading a little bit from uh, Paul of the Cross today, and he said, you know, every morning you get up and the first thing you do is that you take the crucifix and you, you kiss each of the wounds of Christ or simply meditate on them. And he says, oh, what an eloquent sermon. You know, simply gazing at the depth of God's love and mercy for the first 10 minutes of the day is something that transforms the heart. And so to be in the presence of a saint is to see that same self-emptying love. And it might be very few words or no words that bears witness to the gospel and bears witness to Christ in a far greater way than the, the most beautiful and eloquent of sermons or the, the most brilliant of writings. And, you know, I think often we, we don't have that confidence in the grace of God, you know, that we want to manage the things in our life, including manage the relationships in our life 
And really, it's about abandonment to God and to the action of his grace in our life fully. That's what's transformative. Okay. So that um, we ran a little over there, and so we'll, we'll stop there for the evening. And uh, this is a great hypothesis, so we'll have a lot more of an opportunity to go into it more deeply if you some, have some other thoughts or suggestions. So let close as always with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thank you all.